0: This is Vis-a-Vis, a new podcast series brought to you by the Alliance Programme at Columbia University. Vis-a-Vis features conversations that challenge our understanding of key global, economic, and social issues by casting them in a the transatlantic perspective. I'm Emmanuel Catan. I head the Alliance Programme, a partnership between Columbia University and three French universities, Sciences Po, Paris and Pantheon Sorbonne, and École Polytechnique. Every episode, I sit down face-to-face with, or as we say in French, Vis-a-Vis, some of the most insightful thinkers on both sides of the Atlantic. I hope you enjoy our conversation. If you were asked to name the key dangers that threaten the survival of humanity today, climate change and global pandemics would probably come at the top of your list. But what about the threat of nuclear annihilation? Despite the fact that the world's nuclear arsenal has been significantly reduced since the end of the Cold War, there are still 13,000 nuclear warheads in the world today, enough to eradicate humanity several times over. And did you know that since the 1950s, there have been at least 15 nuclear close calls, incidents that could have led to a nuclear catastrophe causing the death of hundreds of thousands of people? Given the real risk that nuclear destruction still represents, why does it not feature more prominently in the public debate? Why does nuclear disarmament seem to be on the back burner when it comes to foreign policy? And why are we, ordinary citizens, not more involved in debating this threat? In order to help us cast light on these issues, vis a invited Benoît Pélopidas, associate professor at Sciences Po in Paris. Professor Pélopidas is the principal investigator of a 1.5 million euros project on nuclear weapons choices funded by the European Research Council, one of the most competitive and prestigious EU grants. He's also the founding director of Nuclear Knowledges, the first academic research program in France on the nuclear phenomenon. In recent years, he has engaged with policymakers in the U.S. and Europe, as well as with civil society groups, to advocate innovative nuclear disarmament and arms control policies. Benoît Pelopidas is the author of *Repenser les choix nucléaires, Rethinking Nuclear Choices, published earlier this year at Presse de Sciences Po. Professor Pelopidas, welcome. We've come a long way since the Cold War, when the nuclear threat was at the front and center of global conversations. This issue isn't as heavily discussed now, but does it mean that the nuclear threat is less significant today than it was 30 years ago?
1: Good afternoon, Emmanuel. Thanks for having me. So we have this false sense of confidence that we've avoided unwanted nuclear explosions so far, which is then translated as meaning... We've been in complete and perfect control over those weapons. And what scholarship, including mine, has demonstrated is that in key instances, what protected us from unwanted nuclear explosions is things that are beyond controllability. We're going to talk more about that. But so the past was indeed very risky uh, and we should not forget that. But even if the arsenals have decreased in size massively since the end of the Cold War, their destructive capacity remains. Um, Just to give you a a sense of the seriousness of the risk, the Science and Security Board of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists has set what they call the doomsday clock, which is a a metaphorical way of assessing nuclear danger. Uh, They have set the clock at 100 seconds to midnight for two years in a row, which is the closest to the moment of nuclear apocalypse we've we've ever been at. So, quickly, the few reasons why nuclear explosions remain possible. First, the pursuit of credibility of nuclear deterrence requires preparing for using nuclear weapons and communicating this willingness. The second element is at the level of doctrines. NATO, as well as most nuclear weapon states, do not have a no first use policy. Only China and India in doctrine say we would not use those weapons first. The third uh, element is that scholarship about the history of the US and Soviet and then Russian nuclear force sizing has demonstrated that the size of those forces, including today, they exceed the requirements of deterrence. There are additional missions. Uh, Otherwise, we would have much smaller nuclear forces. So that also opens a way for possible use. Um, Then we have sort of sociological evidence where war games and crisis simulations have frequently led uh, to the use of nuclear weapons, including in very recent years with uh, members of the NSC staff of President Obama. And, you know, finally, there is a June 2020 Russian military document that explicitly states those are the circumstances in which the Russian Federation would allow uh, the use of tactical nuclear weapons. So for all of those reasons, on top of which comes the luck argument, we should not think and act as if the possibility of nuclear explosions doesn't exist.
0: Right. And and one of the... Um worrying factors over the last um, um, 60 years has been the, the number of nuclear close calls. Um, some of them are well-publicized, like the, nuclear, uh, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, uh, some of them less so. And the issue with these near accidents is that they highlight the fact that um, control practices put in place um, in order to avoid uh, an unintended attack can sometimes fail. So, um, how significant is the risk um, at the level of uh, these uh, these close calls? If you examine those close calls, um, what are the real risks, and and what are the the um, the controls put in place? Can we harmonize these control practices to um, avoid an unintended attack? And um, are there any international standards in place also that can help make these control practices more secure?
1: When we talk about past cases of neonuclear use, also known as closed calls, we're relying on declassified primary sources and people... Uh, or military personnel available for interview, which means that we're massively relying on the U.S. case, the U.K. case, and to a lesser extent, France. We're essentially with a team contributing to more declassification on the French case. But we have to keep in mind that what we've discovered about those cases is most likely an underestimation of how many and how serious those past cases of closed calls were Just to give a brutal piece of evidence of that, the Cuban Missile Crisis, which you mentioned, which is the most studied nuclear crisis, it took the scholarly community three decades to grasp the full seriousness of it. So we should not come to think that, oh, we haven't heard about anything serious in the last three decades, therefore we're totally in the clear. No, what that means is that we should realize that we are not in capacity to know of anything that would have happened in recent years. And even about the more distant past, most nuclear weapon states are still very opaque. Improving our knowledge and improving transparency is really uh, a common cause, both for scholarship and, and for policy work. You know, for policy purposes and for analytical purposes, it's crucial that we know that we can distinguish whether we've avoided unwanted nuclear explosions because we've controlled everything or whether we've avoided it thanks to other dimensions. And so the other dimensions are modes of luck. One of them is to say, we've avoided unwanted nuclear explosions thanks to the failure of a control practice, you know, thanks to someone disobeying, thanks to technology failing. Second mode of luck, we've avoided unwanted nuclear explosions thanks to a factor which is independent from the realm of control practices. In third mode of luck, we've avoided unwanted nuclear explosions in spite of the failure of, of a control practice. So the third one is the only good news in the story, right? It's, it's macro level resilience, but it should still be counted as luck.
0: So could you give us an example of uh, a near miss or um, an accident that was um, prevented uh, thanks to uh, the factors that you just
1: described? So we're going to go to uh, the Grand Forks uh, Air Force Base in September of 1980. And uh, the Grand Forks fire is a clear case of a fortunate outcome independent of control practices. On that night of September 1980, engine number 5 of a B52 on the Grand Forks Air Force Base in North Dakota caught fire and in, in spite of the intervention of fire factor, fighters kept burning for more than 3 hours. What prevented the fire from affecting the compartment where the srams a weapons uh, were to explode is that a strong wind kept the flames away from the weapons compartment. So this is a clear case of luck, and just one among several. Just one last element, Uh, through interviews and archival research in France and the US, I found quite concerning evidence that organizations with a mandate of essentially perfect control over the weapons have incentives to cover up those events, Uh, for institutional survival's sake. And so for policy purposes, the key would be to incentivize more transparency and to essentially learn from past bad practices and not just from past good practices in order to improve uh, safety.
0: I'm wondering if there isn't also overconfidence in the rationality of the actors themselves, uh, the leaders who have their finger on the button. Shouldn't we also account for the mental state of leaders who have access to the nuclear codes and who are sometimes under you know huge amounts of pressure? Um, can we always trust them to make the right decision, particularly if they themselves believe that their opponent um, is not necessarily mentally stable?
1: Yeah, that's one uh, one crucial consideration here, and it it essentially brings three ideas to mind. The first one really comes from the work of other scholars, in particular cognitive psychologist Rose McDermott, who has documented that the internal logic of nuclear deterrence does not require complete rationality on the part of all the actors. So essentially the logic is, if you're a small state and deterrence fails, uh, we have evidence from... France and the UK, that it only takes a few bombs to essentially destroy the country beyond uh, any possible recovery. So if you know that, what's the rationality of retaliation? But your adversary in the logic of deterrence should know that you will retaliate even in that case. And so what Rose McDermott shows is that for the whole of of nuclear deterrence to logically make sense, the driver has to be and would be Anger and not rationality. So there is an anger element, but which is very localized, right? Because it supposes that everyone assumes you'll be angry at that point, but at the same time, you'll not be angry at any other point because when you're faced with nuclear threats, it will create prudence. So there is an inconsistency there in terms of where do you assume rationality? And that's, that's really a cause of concern that echoes what, what you said. Uh, and so if we take that back to kind of a historical set of examples, nuclear threats, sometimes they cause fear, which in turn triggers caution, which is the expectation of nuclear deterrence. But sometimes that doesn't work that way. Sometimes they do not cause fear. An earlier work of mine has shown that during the cuban Missile crisis, France was surprisingly not afraid, essentially because they were looking the other way. That was a week when uh, there was a domestic referendum on on whether uh, de Gaulle was going to stay in power or not. There was a trial of someone who tried to kill him. Uh, And there was a sense in the early 60s that distance was still protecting you and that Cuba was some sort of a regional affair. So I'm going to tell you another example, uh, which would be, German Chancellor Konrad Adenauer. So, you know, they're in Berlin. They're essentially, they're what's at stake with the Cuban Missile Crisis. So his advisors essentially say, oh, the budget for protection of Berlin uh, hasn't been implemented. So we're essentially completely vulnerable. Adenauer says "Khrushchev is just a drunk who only understands force. Tell the Americans to escalate. Same thing nuclear threat, you would expect, you know, uh, a reaction that would uh, emphasize kind of caution and de-escalation. No, you get the opposite. So we should, we should be wrong to assume that nuclear threats will always produce fear, that will always produce caution. We have already had examples uh, uh, the other way around. One last point, which is really a finding of the book because you've talked about leaders. And indeed, in nuclear weapon states, there is a focus on the responsibility and the control of the leader. What you see is that the proponents of reliance on nuclear weapons for security, what they trust is not the leader to make the right decisions. They trust the rationality of this chain of command and aggregate their belief is in case of a, let's call it crazy order or, you know, illegitimate order, someone down the chain of command will recognize it for what it is and will disobey. It, I, I'm insisting on that because that's another locus for luck, right? Because the way those organizations work is that everyone is trained not to do that, but everyone expects them to do essentially this what I call fortuitous disobedience, and that's that's kind of documented in the u s and in France,
0: turning to the uh, the role of 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 citizens themselves and and the general knowledge among um, the population of uh, the issues at stake. your research in the context of nuclear no- uh, the nuclear knowledges program, uh, which you founded at Sciences Po. Um, uh, tells of a survey that you ran aimed at assessing the the French population's knowledge of the nuclear issue and and assess an an awareness of the nuclear risks. Um, What are the main findings of the survey? And did you find that French citizens in particular are well informed about the current risks of uh, nuclear confrontation?
1: Contrary to what we Here in official discourse, in the press, and in expert writings, there is no such thing as a French consensus about nuclear weapons policy when we're talking at the level of the attitudes of the public. Nuclear weapons are not talked about as weapons. They are talked about as the deterrent, which assumes that they do deter, they do deter all the time, they don't do anything but deter and no other weapon would deter anyway. So if you're asking a question in terms of, do you want nuclear weapons for protection or conventional weapons or both, given that there is no discussion about opportunity costs of any of those, obviously you get a majority that supports. What we did is that we wanted to avoid those biases. So we said, are you willing to have your country be a target as part of the nuclear deterrence policy to protect your country? Uh, are you willing to have you know, your taxes uh, serve the modernization of the arsenal? Are you willing to have the president implement the national nuclear doctrine on your behalf? And if you ask questions that simple, you find that the level of support uh, either moderate or or complete, for those requests is extremely low. That doesn't mean that there is a massive amount of the French population that opposes that. The key finding is that most French uh, respondents have essentially incorporated a sense of powerlessness. They've disengaged. So Instead of claiming there is consensus, we should have said we've produced massive disempowerment of the citizenry. And we find a similar uh, finding for the UK. This is actually, I should have told you this uh, earlier. This is a survey that we conducted in the two European nuclear weapon states and in the five hosts. Um, You've also asked me about the levels of knowledge overall. So bad news there also. One very simple fact question was, pick in the list which country has nuclear weapons. So only 3.6% of respondents pick all nine. But what's important is that across all uh, surveyed countries, over 40% of respondents take Iran as possessing nuclear weapons already. To me, that's obvious consequence of everyone saying proliferation Iran, proliferation Iran for 20 years. In that that's just one example.
0: That's that's fascinating. And I'm 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 wondering whether um this feeling of disempowerment is um how, how does that relate to the actual fear among the general population regarding uh the the, the possibility of a nuclear catastrophe? I mean, is the disempowerment so strong because the fear level is low, or is it um, a reflection of the fact that um, ordinary citizens like uh, like myself feel that there are really no real levers um, that we can pull in order to influence uh, nuclear policy and influence decision-making at uh, at the national level?
1: So, so I'm going to answer this question just with one more figure, which is that 39% of respondents have explicitly said, we've never really worried about a nuclear catastrophe of any kind. And, and there are multiple uh, drivers of that. Uh, and that there's more to be done, but I, I really devote a chapter of, of the book to exactly that. We need to keep in mind that since 1980, nuclear explosions have become invisible. They've gone underground. So the direct experience of them uh, is no longer there. Then the second source of distancing is that official experts in nuclear weapon states, the claims they make, they are not just descriptive claim. They also have a performative mission, which is to convince the putative enemy that the existing arsenal works that the policy is credible and effective and all of this. So by definition, we couldn't possibly ask them about the limits of the policy or the existing vulnerabilities. But the problem is we keep asking them as if we don't understand that if they knew of any of those, they couldn't possibly tell. That that's really the 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 role of independent scholarship here, to uh, be able to speak to those matters. And then the third source of distancing, is that it's hard to believe in what we know. Those who say we know nuclear weapons use remain possible, even they say we know, but it's hard to believe and act accordingly with that belief. And that's where I would claim that not just education, but also visual popular culture played a key role. Because during the Cold War, there are a series of aesthetic gestures that did put us viewers in a world in which it was conceivable to have this kind of disaster. And I mean, in the story of President Reagan was the day after. We know that the movie had a big impact, but that's not that's not the only one. And what's what's striking is that post-Cold War, visual popular culture essentially no longer talks about nuclear war, but the aesthetic gestures that helped us overcome this disbelief and get to a position where what we know and what we believe are in sync, instead, we have a popular culture that no longer helps us overcome this gap. Instead, we have a popular culture that produces the sense that nuclear weapons are either a thing of the past or things that can detonate only in small amounts, not Creating the possibility of retaliation, or even irreplaceable salvation devices against an asteroid hitting the Earth, even if NASA said that wouldn't work and we would do it differently.
0: Right, and so so I guess that what you're saying is this, this that there should be an invitation to Hollywood to you know produce more films that uh, are based on nuclear catastrophes that would. Perhaps help um, help us get to grips concretely with the with the real risk of uh, of nuclear um, of, of nuclear catastrophe. Um, one last question, um, Professor Bello um, How how do you you've mentioned? this notion of education as, as, you know, bridging the gap of, of knowledge, popular culture, Hollywood films, etc. What are the other ways in which you can engage with the public? And, and what are the ways in which the public itself, I mean, citizens like, like you and me, can um, actually influence um, uh, uh, policies and, and influence uh, the, the general awareness of the real dangers of, uh, of the nuclear threat?
1: The common logic is either there is nuclear war and then I'm dead anyway, or there is no nuclear war and I'm gonna be happier if I don't think about it. I think the the point to you know cut through that is to say, look, even if there is no nuclear war, those policies they have an impact on on what is expected of you as a citizen. And your choice is not to be affected or not, but to be active or not on on this. A component of your world, and and that's how I'm hoping to you know help uh, bring together a, a generation of citizens that are clear about the choices they make about the nuclear weapons policies they support with like consistent justifications of whatever choices they want to make. And the second uh, element in terms of teaching is always confront accepted knowledge about nuclear realities with available evidence. And if that sounds impossible, then that's your research project. Devise a research design that would allow you to either close this gap or explain it instead of, you know, letting the gap be epistemologically insignificant. And that's here, <laughs> that's a, probably a, a convention of, of obsession for consistency because this is exactly the way I teach, and the way the nuclear knowledges program got created, we 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 observed, we talked about luck earlier. So we observed that there were talks about luck for five decades, but that the scholarship essentially paid tribute to them, but treated those luck claims as we don't know how to treat them, and we're going to act and do give advice as if they don't matter. And so the, the key was, let's devise a strategy to become able to assess luck, and we, we've talked about it. Another element, and that's something that artists could do, to help citizens get the order of magnitude right. because And that's how you started this conversation. It's hard for, for us to grasp the destructive um, capacity of those arsenals. So we created a one-minute video that simply compares the destructive capacity of the global nuclear arsenals today with the bomb that leveled Hiroshima on August 6, 1945, and with all the explosives detonated in World War II to just get an order of magnitude roughly correctly. In terms of what citizens can do, they, they can, I think realize, the first point that I made earlier, that they are already affected and they have ways of distinguishing uh, reliable sources of knowledge, then they can write to their representatives. They can create, you know, collectives. They can connect the nuclear weapons issue with other existential threats. It's particularly striking that there is a climate movement that doesn't talk about nuclear weapons and a nuclear weapons movement that talks about climate only in the discussion about nuclear winter, but not much more.
0: Thank you so much, Professor Puropidas. Uh, we've talked a lot about luck um, in the context of, of nuclear risk. Uh, we've been very lucky to have you over um, here at uh, Vis-a-Vis uh, today to share your insights, um, uh, which go a long way uh, to building uh, our knowledge and understanding of, of, uh, of nuclear risk. Thank you so much, and uh, if you want to get, dig deeper into these questions, Repensez les choix nucléaires, Rethinking Nuclear Choices, is available at Sciences Po University Press. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Vis-a-vis is brought to you by the Alliance Programme, a partnership between Columbia University, Paris pantheon Panthéon-Sorbonne, Sciences Po, and École Polytechnique. This podcast is produced by Monica Hunter-Hart and Abdelbasid Ali and I'm Emmanuel Kitan. Special thanks to Michelle Wilson and her colleagues at Columbia Libraries. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on your podcast platform. If you're interested in learning more about the Alliance Programme and how we support academic exchanges, research, and collaboration between the US and France, please visit us at alliance.columbia.edu or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening.